This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Some people think getting to the moon was the most important thing humanity has ever done. And then there are lessons there that obviously you're not going to get to the moon probably, but you can you can learn lessons from that. You know, you can think big. That's what Kennedy did. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Helen Glennie, Editorial Assistant at BBC Focus magazine. Human civilization has done some incredible things. Some achievements, like building the Pyramids of Giza, are awe-inspiring. Others, such as the eradication of smallpox, have changed the lives of millions. But nothing can quite match the effect Neil Armstrong's first footsteps on the surface of the moon had. It brought the planet together in a moment of shared awe, even if it was the competition of the space race that drove it forward. There is no denying the technical achievement of launching a rocket nearly 400,000 kilometres towards the moon, landing on the surface and returning the crew safely back to Earth, especially when you consider the computers used famously had processing power less than a modern smartphone. But the moon landing wasn't just a great achievement for technology. It also pushed the boundaries of the human mind to its limits. In his new book, Shoot for the Moon, psychologist Richard Wiseman interviews the people who were there at Mission Control, planning the Apollo missions, communicating with the astronauts in space, and making split-second decisions that would mean the difference between missions' success or failure, between life and death. 
In this podcast, he speaks to online editor Alexander McNamara about the effect the Apollo program had on the national psyche, the great mental strains that both the crew at Mission Control and the astronauts in space needed to go through to assure success, and how you can harness the lessons they learned to change your mindset and achieve your own moonshots. But first, just a quick reminder that we really want to see your reviews of the show so that we can get an idea of how we're doing. And please share your suggestions of who you think we should speak to on Twitter, at ScienceFocus. The book is about the, the really the psychology of the Apollo landings. I mean, there's been a huge amount of literature, as you might imagine, about the technology. And then a few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, massively into the Apollo landings. And I said, has anyone ever written anything about the mindset that got us to the moon? Because it was a phenomenal achievement. And it turned out they hadn't. And so I said, well, how would I go about doing that? And they said, we should really interview the mission controllers, these folks that are very sort of heart of the uh, the mission. Uh, It turns out because they were young folks at the time, uh, they're still around or many of them are still around. And so I went around, I interviewed them and the book is about their mindset that allowed them to do pretty much the impossible. And then how you can use that in your own life to achieve, you know, perhaps put yourself on the moon, but hopefully in, in impressive things in your own life. So the book is sort of a cross between a science history book and a sort of personal psychology. So it's a really odd crossover. And I've written many books uh, about popular psychology, and they're all sort of self-development books where you say, here's the theory, here's the research, here's the evidence, and here's some things you can do. This book is very different because the first part of every chapter is a little bit of the narrative of how we got from Earth to the moon. The second part then brings out the principle involved in that particular stage and gives you some exercises and techniques for incorporating that into your own uh, life and thinking. So it's a very unusual self-development quotes uh, crossover science book. I, I don't think anyone's quite done that before, where you have this sort of overarching narrative and you're dropping out these techniques as you go along. We all know that we've uh, landed on the moon. Um, but I was just wondering if you'd be able to give us like a, a little explain as to sort of what the Apollo program was and, and how it happened. Well, the, the, the context is, is vital. So you have um, early uh, 60s, uh, America sort of feeling they're, they're lagging behind the, the Soviets and the, the space race. And then Kennedy does this remarkable thing, which he said, OK, we're going to put a person on the moon by the end of the decade. And now, I, I, I think as we look back, we don't perhaps realize what a phenomenal idea that was. He said that in, in 61. And at the time, America had just sent somebody around about 100 miles uh, on, a, on a brief sort of space hop, 100 miles up and then straight back again. And there he was standing there and saying, as a nation, we're going to come together and we're going to go a quarter of a million miles to the moon, land and come back again by the end of the decade. It's a ridiculous idea, quite frankly. Uh, But the the nation embraced that for the most part, and they managed to do it. They managed to draw together the the, the psychology and, um, perhaps more importantly, in some senses, the technology that means by 69, uh, Neil Armstrong steps onto the moon. And, And so, you know, along the way, you have many smaller steps, but fundamentally, that's the overarching story. That must have been quite a huge uh, risk for Kennedy at the time. There must have been quite a lot of psychology in the idea of saying, you know what, at the moment we can just about get people uh, 100 miles up. Um, Within the next 10 years, we're going to land someone on a, a body in outer space. 
Yeah, I, and I and I think that's where a lot of the psychology is because when you look at his meetings uh, with with scientists and with advisors, they're coming up with plans which are a lot more doable and actually, quite frankly, not as exciting. And he realizes that he needs a plan that's going to energize the whole nation, make people passionate about this. And it's such a a kind of moonshot, we'd, we'd, we'd call it now, is where the name comes from. You know, it's such a crazy idea. People are like, my goodness, how exciting if we could do that. And then people start to hear about this, this amazing idea and the fact that they could be part of it. And not only in terms of paying taxes to make it happen, but also working at NASA. So people start to make their way to NASA uh, to, uh, to work there. But I think Kennedy's sense of passion, uh, the fact that he is such a big goal, such an exciting goal, is psychologically absolutely vital. Without that, he would not have galvanized the nation. That, that, that's huge grand scale thinking. So how, how was that applied uh, within the mission? I, I think that people just really got excited. I mean, when you speak to the mission controllers, uh, they're now in their 70s and 80s, and you take them back to that time, early 60s, mid 60s, you can hear the sense of excitement in their voices. Every single one of them says, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I'd be there in a shot. It was the most exciting thing I did. I gave my life to this. Many of them will say, for them, the 60s doesn't exist because they just never moved outside of that building. They don't know any 60s music. They know nothing about 60s fashion. They don't know very much about the news because they were absolutely dedicated to this. And one said, you know, it never felt like we worked a day in our lives. We, we were so passionate about what we were doing and we were so convinced that we could do it and that, that the nation would love us for it, that this just became not, not our vocation, but our calling. So is that something that we can take that that sort of dedication, that that mindset that they had? There's a way that we can use that in our own lives. I, I think that there's a couple of ways. And I, and I talk about this in the, the, the book. One of them is what's meaningful for you. You know, what, what would really matter? You can do sort of, uh, sort of famous uh, psychology exercises where you look about, you think about your legacy. You know, what, what is it you're going to leave that, that, that matters? Another way of injecting meaning into pretty much anything you're doing is to ask the question, well, how is this helping others? So people are not just passionate about putting you know, a person on the moon, they're doing it because that's meaningful. It means that, you know, America's going to pull ahead in the space race. It means that, that America will own space and that's going to help in terms of, in their mind, uh, in, in terms of democracy and, and peace and so on. It's a meaningful thing to do. And so whatever people, jobs people have, there's quite a lot of research that when you say to them, but how does that help other people? They become far more committed to that job. So there's some lovely work uh, where people are working on supermarket um, checkouts, for example, not the most traditionally meaningful job in the world. But when you point out that often the contact they're having with some customers will be the only contact that those customers have with anyone all, all day. And for those people, it's incredibly important. And there's lots of research to support that. For the people working on the checkouts, now it becomes a meaningful activity and something that some of them become quite passionate about. So it's either a question of discovering your passions and following them, or it's a question of, um, of, of sort of saying what's meaningful here. And that's how you apply really the, the, the kind of moon uh, kind of uh, approach to your everyday life. It's, just, it's quite incredible how the, work, the fact that something so significant and, and huge as the Apollo landing could actually have an effect on our lives in a very, very sort of grand way in ourselves, our own moonshots. I, absolutely. And I think that's that's really 
I mean, no one has done this book before, as 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 far as I know, and and so I think that's why it's that really rather strange pairing of saying that some people think getting to the moon was the most important thing humanity has ever done, and then there are lessons there that obviously you're not going to get to the moon probably, but you can you can learn lessons from that. You know, you can think big. That's what Kennedy did. And how do you do that in your own life? How do you think big? And 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 then by setting those kind of stretch goals, as they're known uh, in, in psychology, that helps you to achieve them. And and so I, I do think there are very strong parallels here. I think there are things we can take away uh, from the moon landings that are over and above the advances in technology. So in the book, there's eight sort of ways how uh, attached around particular stories of uh, or events that happened in the uh, moon landing and the Apollo program that sort of we can take from that to our own lives. Are there any in particular that particularly resonated for you that, that, that really said, wow, that's a great story and really works well in real life as well? I think probably the, the very first interview I did, um, which was with uh, Jerry Bostick, one of the most famous mission controllers. And I couldn't get my head around what was really happening in terms of recruitment and mission control. Because nowadays, if you think about it, if you imagine the country is going to do the most important thing, it's going to spend vast amounts of its uh, national budget on that particular enterprise, who are you going to put into that room? Well, you'd probably go to the best universities. You go to your senior engineers and, uh, and so on. So you go to your senior engineers and so on. NASA didn't do that. There was so much skepticism and cynicism about the idea of being able to reach uh, the moon by the end of the decade that they simply went out and found a group of people who were extraordinarily passionate and extraordinarily young. And I spoke to Jerry and I said, well, why did they go for such young people? And he said, because we were so young, we didn't know we couldn't do it. We just went in in a kind of gung-ho way thinking, well, if you know the president wants to get us to the moon, we'll get to the moon. We didn't know how hard it was. He said what a lot of people do is they give up before they start. They kind of go, we're not going to be able to achieve this as a group or as an individual. There's no point in trying. That becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Kennedy has this lovely line where he says, you know, if we try, we may not succeed, but if we don't try – we're going to fail. And I think that is the the, the, the big story here. It's, it's a bunch of very young people. When, when Armstrong walked on the moon, the average age in mission control is 26. They are phenomenally young. But because of that, they believe in themselves and they believe this thing is possible. And I think that is at the, the root uh, of it. And I, and I think that's a key message, I, I think, from uh, from the moon landings. So essentially, it's, you know, having that that personal belief in, in both yourself and the whole mission uh, or whatever you're doing. That's a, a key takeaway from the Apollo missions. It, that, that, that's right. I mean, they, they were passionate. Obviously, most of them had a background in engineering, but not always. I mean, there's you know, marketing people in there and, and so on. But they were passionate about it. Uh, they were team players. Um, they, they didn't have people there that, that wanted to be individual stars. They wanted a group of people that wanted to do something significant and all prepared to work with one another to make that happen. But they didn't give up before they started. And, and it's very easy, I think, when you have these stretch goals, when you have these ideas, you think, well, it'll always be somebody else that will do that. It'll never be me. And, and of course, in doing so, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think that thought, lay, big time, lays at the heart of the moon landings. And, and of course, 
what's great about this is that they managed to do it against all of the odds. They managed to do it. A, a team of 20 something sat in a room uh, and with a huge amount of support, obviously, but still managed to actually do this essentially impossible goal. That is incredible. I mean, I, you could just think that it must have been quite a difficult sell, essentially, for Kennedy and NASA and the team to, to convince the country that, you know, when he said we are going to go to the moon, that this was the group of people that he trusted to, to take them. Yeah, I mean, I think the initial sale, which was we're going to go to the moon, was a fairly easy uh, one uh, because everyone went, wow, OK, fine. Let's let's all get behind and, and do it. And, and of course, that's another key point here is that they were doing it not for themselves. The, these are I mean, I've interviewed many, many people in terms of the science of success over the last sort of 20 years. This is the most humble group of people I've ever interviewed. And yet the group that have achieved the most. So when you look back on the transcripts of those interviews, it's really hard to find the word I. They are trained and their experiences, we, they say we for everything. We did this. We did that. They're always talking about each other's achievements. They're rarely talking about their own. And so their mindset was, you know, we're doing this for the good of the nation, uh, for the future generations and so on. And we're doing it as a team. It is not about any one of us being famous. These are not famous people. It's about doing something that's going to change world history in a very positive way. A very, very particular mindset. It's interesting because that that we we and mentality and mindset that you have it all produced a very positive result, which was landing on the moon. But also um, in the book, you talk about there's a, a chapter about the Apollo 1 disaster um, and how they took collective responsibility each individual uh took their own responsibility for that um uh, both as individuals and the team essentially yeah so the, so for your listeners that don't know the, the apollo one disaster was a, a terrible fire on earth not they, they thought where they would lose people uh, in space and in, in fact actually they, they didn't think that initial what turned out to be apollo 11 uh that, that first mission to the moon as, as it were from moon landing um they didn't think it would be successful they, they were pretty much certain that um it was 50 50 at uh, best um but where they actually lost people was was on the ground a terrible fire uh, for apollo one uh, the command uh, module core fire and again I, I spoke to the mission controllers that were that were on shift, as it were, uh, for that. And it was a terrible, terrible experience. And part of the underpinning for that was actually overconfidence. They were rushing ahead. They'd got this idea that nothing bad could happen. And to, to be honest, a lot of them, um, or, or some of the people within NASA, were not perhaps taking full responsibility. You know, there was a little bit of groupthink going on. Everybody was, was, was giving responsibility to other people. And so I think that was a, a key turning point where they realized how serious this endeavor was and that the important thing was they needed to learn from mistakes, something that now psychologists refer to as a growth mindset. This idea that when terrible things happen, not only do you have to be resilient and bounce back, but you have to go, all right, I need to make this a learning experience. I need to take responsibility for my actions and I need to make certain it doesn't happen again in the future. So I think the Apollo 1 fire, terrible and tragic as it was, um, was absolutely crucial to getting to the moon. I think without it, we probably wouldn't have got there because of that, that shift in attitude that happened uh, when the, the fire took place. And is that... Is that something that we can take from that uh, that story as it were to apply in our own practically in our own lives I think the 
the, the message there is, of course, terrible things happen, unfortunately, to, to most of us as we, not terrible things, but negative things happen to most of us as we go through life. The question is, how do you respond to that? Because if you think, well, I'm the sort of person or the sort of organization that doesn't change, then that negative thing becomes catastrophic because there's nothing you can do about it. If you're the sort of person that says, okay, this is a learning opportunity, it's an opportunity to do things better in the future, then you grow. And, and I think that, that growth mindset, and there's a vast amount of research uh, into it now, uh, is, is absolutely crucial. And it's reflected, I think, in our language. You know, I talk in the book about the magic word yet. That if you, with kids saying, I mean, I'm not very good at mathematics, if you just had the word yet to the end of that sentence, I'm not very good at mathematics yet, it gives hope. It shows you a flexible person, a person that's going to learn and change and grow. And, and so I think that growth mindset is, is vital to the journey. Coming back to uh, just the, the fact that, that they didn't really anticipate that the mission was going to be a success. They said it was 50-50. What is the mindset that both the people on the ground and the astronauts themselves would have had to have had to be able to go on a mission that they knew that there was a you know, one in two chance that they would be lost in space? Uh, I, well, I think those mindsets are slightly different. I mean, there's been quite a lot written about astronauts' mindsets, and that's that, in a sense, is is slightly different. I think, from a mission control perspective, um, when I, I spoke to, to some of them, they felt that by the time Apollo rolled around and some of the later stages of the, the project, there was this sense in which that they knew what they were doing was extremely dangerous, particularly after the fire. And there was a sense of, you know, should, are we really going to do this? Are we are we really going to send three people up into space, possibly uh, to their, their deaths? And there's a, a very famous moment in a meeting where uh, Glenn, Lunny, Glenn Lunny talks about this, who's one of the, the mission controllers. He said, you know, I said, if we're going to go to the moon, at some point, we have to go to the moon. We have to stop talking and start doing. And he's thought for, for him that was a real pivotal moment you suddenly realize we're going to do this thing it is dangerous there are risks associated with it but if we're going to reach that goal if that's a goal worth reaching we are going to have to take those risks and i think the attitude which is about bravery it's about moving outside your comfort zone it's about dropping away the excuses why you're not changing and getting on with it are absolutely vital and, and again, one of the mission controllers said, you know, we took risks. We were never reckless. We always knew they were calculated risks. But I think that, that key attitude is at some point, if you're going to go to the moon, you've got to go to the moon. If you're going to do this thing, you have to get on and do it. At some point, the talking has to stop. And then once it started, were there ever points where they, you know, they'd have to, they were prepared for this, but they'd have to say this risk is too much. Oh, I'm, I'm certainly on the planning. I mean, they, they, they're incredible in terms of their preparations. And, and certainly in certain moments, they would go, my goodness, this is ridiculous. This is reckless. Um, but they had safety systems and safety systems behind those. So for any one part of that mission, there were several safety systems and then a final system that hopefully would bring you home um, rather than, than, than push you forward into an even more dangerous situation. So certainly very, very risky. Um, and astronauts incredibly brave for sitting on, you know, if, if one of the Saturn V's would have exploded, you've had the largest non-nuclear uh, explosion in the history of mankind. Those things are just 
you know, essentially bombs they're sitting on top of. So incredibly brave. Um, but again, as a team, they went, we will take these risks. We know what they are. We, we would never want to be in the position of putting somebody in a dangerous position because we didn't take responsibility or we we're reckless, but we are prepared to take risks. And that responsibility is with every person in the, 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 the team knowing their part. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, uh, one of the uh, astronauts, Ken Mattingly, says, you know, at some point he's looking at this um, Saturn V rocket, you know, containing millions of parts. And there's an engineer uh, working on just one tiny switch or whatever it is. And he says, you know, how confident are you that this thing is going to work? Um, and the engineer famously says, well, I don't know about the rest of it. But what I do know is in terms of this switch, this mission won't fail because of me. And if everyone has that attitude, if everyone involved in every part of this rocket has the attitude of it won't fail because of me, we'll all be fine. And I think that was the attitude. And nowadays, it has to be said, we're quite good at passing responsibility off to other people, uh, and particularly in some organizations. You know, it's all about not taking responsibility or covering your back. They never did that. It was them. And that's it. You never really passed stuff on to your seniors. You took responsibility and it was given to you. You were expected to do your job and, and, and do it in a very, very responsible way. That must have been a lot of trust that was given to these. As you say, this mission control was average age 26. Um, there's a lot of trust that's being given to them, both by the, you know, their seniors, the, the, the people in government and the astronauts as well. Oh, ab Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so Jerry Griffin uh, talks about with um, uh, Apollo 12 that, that, that when it's uh, struck by lightning, you know, he has to make the call. You know, it's it's not he's the um, in charge of mission control at that point. He could easily have passed it up the line to the people above him and so on and goes all the way up. But it doesn't work like that. You're standing there. You've got the facts and figures you make the call. And exactly the same happens when Neil Armstrong, of course, is famously going down to the surface of the moon and there's a problem. And it falls to Steve Bales uh, in um, emission control to make that call. And then he's only got you know, a few moments to do it. He can't pass it up to his seniors. Everyone took responsibility, even though they're incredibly young. And that's definitely something that w we can take that learning uh, from the Apollo mission and use it in our own lives. Oh, I, I think so. Just that, that notion of taking responsibility for successes and, um, and failures, I, I think, is absolutely key. And also, in, in terms of um, Steve Bells, for example, being prepared. I mean, that, that's part of being responsible. So I talk in the book about this type of uh, pessimism called defensive pessimism. Now, normally pessimism is bad for you because you sort of think, well, I'm going to fail at this, I won't try and so on. There is a type of it called defensive pessimism where you think through the terrible things that might happen and you prepare for them. And that's what the Apollo missions did big time, their entire Sims teams, as they're known, that would simulate every single aspect of the, the, the mission. So actually, when it comes to the real thing, they're not particularly nervous as a group because they've, they've gone through that mission uh, as simulated many, many times before and rehearsed for every outcome, which gives them a certain confidence. So again, I think that's a key skill in life, that, that the ability not to be pessimistic, but the ability to think what might go wrong if it does, what's plan B, what's plan C. So very much preparation is, is, is a key mindset to have. Uh, that, absolutely. And, and they had that big time and it really mattered. 
because there wasn't a single mission where things went according to plan. And the famous moment with, with Steve Bales is, you know, a, a computer overload, essentially. Um, uh, Neil Armstrong going towards the surface of the moon. He has got moments, you know, age 26 with 500 million people watching live to make a judgment call. And it just so happened exactly that problem had come up in the very last simulation they had done. And so he could confidently make that call. Without that simulation, he'd have to abort that particular landing probably or um, killed the two astronauts. So, yeah, preparation, absolutely key. And I guess the same would be the same for the actual astronauts who were there, um, you know, potentially cut off from the rest of uh, civilization, uh, that they would have to be prepared for events as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, sometimes because the the timing uh, obviously takes a while to get a signal to Earth and back again, uh, you can't always wait for backup or for somebody else's opinion from mission control. So to some extent, they've got to be autonomous. Um, But they've also got to be flexible because for all that preparation, things still happened. You know, there's a story I write about in the book with Buzz Aldrin, uh, where they're they're sitting in the lunar lander, they're going to blast off, and then they notice they've knocked the, the sort of end of a switch off. And that means they can't engage the rockets. And in all these preparations, they've never knocked the end of that switch off before and, and broken it in the way they did on the actual landing. And so potentially they're stranded on the moon. And it's it's Aldrin that realizes that if he takes a, essentially a felt tip pen and pushes it into the switch, he can re-engage the um, uh, rockets and get off the moon. So, uh, yes, there's still got to be that that flexibility because the unexpected is always going to happen. But it's always built on a sort of bedrock of preparation. I, I mean, I guess that's he's the sort of person that could think in that way, which is why he's the sort of person that was the, one of the first to land on the moon. Yes, I think, um, I don't know about you, but certainly for me, I, I wouldn't be thinking about me felt tip pen at that point. I'd, I would be panicking in tears uh, and regretting the entire thing. So you're not you're not the sort of person who would sign up for I'd like to go to the moon, please. No, no. I think if I was given one of that experience at Christmas, you know, you, you can sort of go and uh, meet a donkey uh, or, or you can go on the moon. Uh, I think I'd go with visiting the local donkey sanctuary. I'm uh, I'm not a natural for space travel, I don't think. I mean, there's sort of horrendous conditions, uh, particularly those, for those early flights. You know, you've got three people in a very small capsule, uh, quite a lot of wind uh, and uh, all sorts of other problems, vomiting and so on, uh, on Apollo 8 in particular. Uh, so I think it's pretty unpleasant. And also, I mean, actually... I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on this by a long way, but actually uh, pretty basic technology. You know, often they're just looking out the window and navigating by the stars. And obviously the computing power at that time, uh, quite famously, is, is is less than certainly less than you get in a smartphone. So it was unbelievably brave thing uh, to do. Um, but they pulled it off and we're still talking about it 50 years later. It, it's phenomenal. So the, the mission has obviously had quite a big uh, impact. Uh, as you say, we're still talking about it. It's had a big impact on, on life on Earth, really. Could you think you could pick out one thing that you would say had the bit of the whole Apollo mission that had the biggest impact to, to you know, humanity, as it were? I, well, I think most people talk about the Earthrise photograph, the, the notion that they were the first people to, if you like, see Earth from space and take a picture. And we realise how fragile the planet is and, and it has a big movement, uh, a big impact on um, the, uh, the green movement and so on. Um, I would say psychologically, though, just that notion that when we pull together as a community, as a country, to some extent as a world, 
we can do phenomenal things. We can do phenomenal things. And if we could put a person on the moon, then surely, you know, we could, we could cure poverty or alleviate poverty or uh, feed um, those who haven't got enough food and so on. So I think it, for a while, created an enormous sense of optimism. I think we've lost that over uh, over time, but I still think the promise is there. It, it, it shows you what you can do when a group of people are passionate and are given the resources to do something which is truly amazing. Do you think that something like landing on Mars would have a similar effect on us? I don't know. I don't know. I think there's something very psychological about the moon. Um, and it's what I talk about in the book again. I, I say to people, you know, go out and look at the look up and you can see the moon. And it, it is obviously a very, very, very long way away. And at the time, the chances of putting a person on that moon are uh, vanishingly small. But we did it. And if we can do it once, we can do it again. And you've still got the same brain, more or less, as the people that did it. So you can use that brain to do amazing things. I mean, the mission controllers are from surprisingly modest backgrounds. They're not from Yale, Stanford, MIT. They went to fairly small colleges. But what they'd got was optimism and passion. And, and it's that really that got them through. And is that something that you would take away? That optimism, passion would be um, uh, what you would that be one of the things that you've taken away from, from doing the book yourself? I, I think the notion that you, you put together a group of people, as I say, from fairly modest backgrounds. Yes, they had resources, but not a great deal of technology that that became their lives. That's how it essentially defined them uh, for, for about uh, 10 years and that they believed they could do it and they were prepared to work together to make it happen. I think all those things just illustrate our potential. That's why I'm interested in a psychologist, you know, is, is our potential and how you make that potential real. And I, and I should say that, you know, from, from day one, uh, there, there's so much drama in the story that the, 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 the most obvious way to get to the moon at the, the time, really, was just to send a rocket straight to the moon. And there was an enormous amount of debate uh, around that that kind of plan. And in the end, they ended up doing almost exactly the opposite. They sent a rocket that orbited uh, the moon, only a small part of it went down, a smaller part uh, came up and an even smaller part uh, returned to um, uh, to the, the, the Earth. So, uh, you know, it again shows uh, the, the power of innovation, of doing things differently, of doing things that no one's done before, of being flexible, being optimistic. It's all kind of encapsulated uh, in this incredible journey. Mm. I mean, it is an incredible story. Just you, uh, what I what you tend to see now, certainly 50 years later, is that it's um, we landed on the moon and that's it. But it, the book makes it quite clear that there is a huge, great big leaps of both technology and, you know, creative mindset to get there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was mad when when Kennedy said that in in sixty one. You know, as I say, America had just gone a hundred miles up and a hundred miles back down. And then he says, "You know what? We're going to get to the moon, land, and come back again." So he could have said, "We're just going to send a rocket. It's going to go onto the moon." Relatively um, sort of doable, kinda. As soon as you got people involved, and they're going to have to land and step out onto the lunar surface, you know, into this hostile um, uh, environment that that no one's ever. Um, stepped out to it before and they're going to get back in and then they're going to take off and come back in it's crazy utterly crazy but we should remember we did it 
we absolutely did it. Uh, I say we, I didn't have much to do with it at the time, but but looking back, I like to consider myself a key part of the team. Uh, we, we, we did it and, 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 and we can do it again and, and we can incorporate that same thinking into our lives. I was just wondering if you'd be able to, if that you had like maybe five ways how we could use, I say five, it can be as many or as few as you want, but just ways we could use that, that Apollo mindset in our, our day-to-day lives, as it were, to sort of give us that, that Apollo prod in the right direction. Sure. I, I would say, first of all, be passionate. I mean, as, as a group, as enormous passion, an entire country passionate about uh, this huge goal. So, so harness that passion or develop it would be absolutely key. Second, I would say often when you have a goal like that, you think, my goodness, it's unachievable. Um, and what you've got to remember is that longest of journeys, series of small steps. That's exactly what the Apollo folks did. They did, you know, the Mercury project, sending one person up, Gemini, sending two, eventually Apollo three. It's a series of small steps. So break that big goal down into lots of smaller steps. Third, believe. You know, that lovely phrase, we're so young uh, that we didn't know it couldn't be done. It's so easy to say to yourself, oh, my goodness, you know, this is this is so difficult. I'm going to give up before we, we start. Actually, believe in yourself. That's absolutely vital. Also, take responsibility. You know, if um, uh, it's not going to fail because of you, don't, get, don't expect everyone else to be doing things for you. Take that sense of responsibility and hold on to it and be brave. You know, take risks. Don't be reckless. If you find yourself kind of giving excuses, oh, I'm going to wait until next week before I start that new job or or whatever it is, think, am I actually being sensible or am I just being too scared to make that change? Change can be quite scary, but you know what? You've got to walk towards the cannon sometimes. You've got to be brave. If you're going to go to the moon at some point, you've got to go to the moon. That was Professor Richard Wiseman, whose book Shoot for the Moon is available now. In the latest issue of BBC Focus magazine, we look deeper into the depths of space and uncover some of the bizarre and unusual objects that are currently mystifying astronomers. We also try to make sense of quantum weirdness, understand the link between brain injury and criminal behaviour, and investigate the medical breakthroughs that could mark an end to heart attacks. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.